It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Live Mike with Lee Lonsberry from Utah's Capitol Hill to your schools, Texas, and all the breaking news. Hear it on Live Mike with Lee Lonsberry on KSL News Radio. Mike, I am Lee Lonsberry. Welcome to this Tuesday episode of Live Mike. I uh, am here to tell you, we are deep into day two of the confirmation hearing taking place in Washington, D.C. in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Utah Senator Mike Lee, a member of that committee, had an opportunity to to interact and ask some questions of the Honorable Amy Coney Barrett today during that hearing and has stepped aside uh, to help us understand exactly his reaction, to get some thoughts and, and share his observations and joins us on the line now. Senator, sir, how are you? Doing great. Thanks so much, Lee. Thank you. Uh, listen, one of the ta- let's, we're going to jump right into it. One of the tactics used by Democrats yesterday and today has been the sharing of personal stories of constituents who have uh, been, say, the beneficiaries of provisions of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, in fact, there's been uh, an entire wall of the committee room there dedicated to uh, photos of these constituents. You addressed this with a, a message to your colleagues and then asked them a question. Let me play this clip for you. So to my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, who are fear-mongering on this, causing people to worry and lose sleep over this, fundraising over this, fundraising over threats that people are going to lose their health care, fundraising over threats that people are going to be dying in the streets because of the lack of availability of this or that medical procedure, I'd ask, have we created a monster? Senator, what did you mean by that, and what's the answer? Has a monster been created? A monster's been created, and we've helped create it in the Congress by allowing the Supreme Court to become increasingly politicized. Now, to be sure, the Supreme Court itself has done plenty of this on its own as well. But the Congress of the United States, and the Senate in particular, has a special obligation to make clear that people understand what is and is not the proper role of the judicial branch of government. And putting up these posters... Day after day in these hearings, as we've seen this week, of, of people uh, whose experiences and personal life experiences are then shared as a sort of testimonial for the Affordable Care Act. In the context of a Supreme Court nomination proceeding, it just really shows how off course we've gotten. This is much more of a, an homage to Obamacare. This is much more of a political rally to the Affordable Care Act than it is a judicial nomination hearing. In another portion of your exchange with Judge Barrett, you asked about the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Here's that exchange. Does the Constitution say anything about the size of the Supreme Court? Um, the Constitution does not. Uh, that is a question left open to Congress. Uh, it's my understanding that it's been nine for about 150 years, but that's as a matter of statute, not constitutional requirement. The number's been nine for 150 years. Is nine the right number? Nine is the right number. There's nothing magical about it. There's nothing talismanic about it. There's nothing mandated uh, by the Constitution for the number nine. Nonetheless, because it's been in place for so long, 
I think it would be a mistake. Uh, it would be a, a prudential misjudgment, certainly, to change that number now, especially in the manner that Joe Biden, I'm told, is seriously considering. Now, Joe Biden himself, as a U.S. senator, as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, on which I now sit, gave a really great speech in 1983 talking about the fact that it shouldn't happen, talking about this very notion, uh, in fact, criticizing quite aggressively a president of his own political party. In fact, the last president who seriously pushed the idea of increasing the number of seats on the Supreme Court was Democratic President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who pushed the idea in the fall of 1936. Fortunately, and notwithstanding the fact that he had a really solid supermajority uh, controlled by his own political party in both houses of Congress, Congress refused to go along with the idea. It nonetheless did lasting damage to the institution. The fact that he even proposed the idea would have been far worse had he done it and succeeded. And so that's why I think it's really dangerous right now that Joe Biden refuses to acknowledge that he's considering it and refuses to rule it out. Now, about that, he, you said today as well that court packing is a threat to uh, religious freedom and free speech. Explain exactly how that's the case. Okay, so the minute you politicize the court, uh, right now it has been somewhat politicized. But as I pointed out in my remarks yesterday, most of the time the Supreme Court is still the model of uh, jurisprudential thought. It's a model of careful, decisive action. It's a model of uh, the, the way that jurists really should operate. Uh, and in fact, the overwhelming majority of its cases, even though they're difficult, are decided not on a five to four basis, but they're decided nine to zero or eight to one or seven to two. Uh, and that's because most of the time, most of those cases are terribly political. The more you add numbers to the Supreme Court and the more you do so specifically with the intention of controlling the kind of the political leanings of the court for those more politically charged cases, the more you're going to create a one-way ratchet in which the professionalization of the court becomes less paramount to its members and more difficult to control. That, in turn, is going to lead to a cheapening of the rights that the court, among other institutions, but the court in particular, really needs to look out for. You, you say a one-way ratcheting. Is that is that to imply that the that number of you know seats on the Supreme Court could only only increase? Uh, it basically yes. Uh, so it, it would have a one-way ratchet effect for the simple reason that once you confirm someone to the Supreme Court in the absence of death, resignation, or impeachment right. and removal, all of which are pretty rare, right. uh, you, you can't eliminate the position. So the position is there. And once you set the modern political precedent that it's just what you do when you've got control of the House, the Senate, and the White House to increase the number of seats on the court, to increase your short-term political advantage on the court, uh, then the next time the other party has the same configuration within those three levers, mm -hmm. the House, the Senate, and the White House, you're going to see them going tit for tat. So maybe this time it increases from 9 to 11, the next time from 11 to 13. And that'll keep going, and it will spiral until you really have lost something 
uh, w- with the great judicial system that we now have. Senator Lee, our, our time has expired. I'd love to sit here for the rest of the afternoon and talk to you about textualism versus originalism. Also, I have many questions about the dormant commerce clause. I'd love to run by you. I think you could do a, a great deal to, to get me up to speed on that clause. Uh, but as it is, uh, you need to get back into this hearing. I need to take a commercial break, and I'll leave you with this thanks uh, for, the, for the work you're doing and for the time you spent with us on the program today. Thank you, Lee, and I look forward to our future interviews specifically on the Dormant Commerce Clause. Oh, it's it's going to be gangbusters. It's going to be great stuff. Thank you so much, Senator. Talk to you later. Thank you. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately... We're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Live Mike with Lee Lonsberry. Welcome back to Live Mike, segment two of this episode, this Tuesday episode of this program here on KSL News Radio. Thank you so much for joining. We're going to take a look at the goings on in Washington, D.C. right now. We had the opportunity to speak with Utah Senator Mike Lee, who questioned Amy Coney Barrett just this morning during the confirmation hearing there as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I want to, I want to return to a theme that we have touched on a few times here on this program and you have seen uh, in the media elsewhere, uh, particularly uh, by Republicans. And those Republicans yesterday during day one of this hearing talked often about the Democrat infatuation with uh, the nominee's faith. Amy Coney Barrett is a practicing Catholic. Uh, she has made no, uh, she's been made no qualms about uh, her adherence to that faith. And we have from the Republicans heard a number of uh, repeated reminders of the exchange which took place in 2017 when uh, then uh, nominee Amy Coney Barrett was being considered for uh, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, a, a nomination which was was ultimately confirmed and she has since then uh, served again that's from 2017 now i i predicted the other day that we would hear nothing nothing about religion from the democratic senators who uh, have the opportunity to question amy coney barrett during either yesterday's time as they delivered statements today's commencement of the question and answer period or as that continues throughout the the rest of the week now we haven't yet heard anything today uh not sure what will come uh tomorrow wednesday or thursday uh, but i think it's important that we uh remember uh the types of questions that she faced uh back in 2017 she you've heard 
probably about the the exchange with uh, Senator Feinstein at the time talking about the uh, dogma which lived in her writings and such like that. Uh, well, uh, another interaction she had back in 2017 was with uh, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin. She spoke to Senator Durbin today. Uh, in fact, let's uh, let's hear that exchange. It centers around race and inequality and recent events which have stoked the flames in our country, including uh, the death of George Floyd. This exchange between Senator Dick Durbin and Amy Coney Barrett comes from uh, just a few hours ago today. Have you seen the George Floyd video? I have. What impact did it have on you? Um, Senator, as you might imagine, given that I have two black children, that was very, very personal for my family. Um, Jesse was with the boys on a camping trip out in South Dakota, so I was there, and my 17-year-old daughter, Vivian, who's adopted from Haiti, um, all of this was erupting. It was very difficult for her. Um, We wept together in my room, and then it was also difficult for my daughter, Juliet, who's 10. I had to try to explain some of this to them. I mean, my children to this point in their lives have had the benefit of growing up in a cocoon where they have not yet experienced hatred or violence. Um, And for Vivian, you know, to understand that there would be a risk to her brother or the son she might have one day of that kind of brutality has been an ongoing conversation. It's a difficult one for us like it is for Americans all over the country. That was a portion of the exchange between Senator Dick Durbin and uh, Judge Barrett today. Now, let's rewind things to 2017 uh, when the senator... Uh, spoke to then nominee Barrett about her religion. There, there's again, as I mentioned, no indication that the Democrats will be using this line of question during the hearing today. Uh, and back in 2017, uh, the same senator who asked uh, Judge Barrett about uh, whether or not she had seen the George Floyd video and, and how that impacted her and her family, he in 2017 started uh, his line of questioning by referencing uh, a paper written by Barrett uh, then 20 years earlier. So reaching back into the 90s, uh, here is that exchange. Professor Barrett, many questions that have been asked if you relate to your uh, religious belief. And uh, it is relevant in that you have many times spoken out as a professor uh, and um, as a lawyer about the burden and opportunity presented by your faith. This article of 20 years ago, which you wrote with John Garvey, uh, as I understand it, you now say you don't agree with. Is that correct? Here is Judge Barrett's response to that. No, Senator Durbin, I agree with the article's main point, as I said, which is that any kind of conviction, religious or otherwise, should never surpass the law. Um, a judge can never follow um, or impose that judge's personal conviction upon litigants in the decision of cases. And that was the article's main point, and I agree with it. Would I, sitting here today, write that article the same way or say that it's an exact mirror image of how I would feel now, 20 years older? No. I mean, but at the thrust of it, that that core point, which restates 28 U.S.C. 455's ethical obligation, I obviously, as every judge would, adhere to. 
The exchange continues. Uh, again, this is coming from 2017. And I'll, I'll share with you in a moment uh, really why uh, I feel it's important to uh, revisit these exchanges and most importantly, revisit the responses given to the Democratic senators by Amy Coney Barrett. Her, uh, her attitude and her understanding of religion in her life and all at the same time having her judicial responsibilities uh, not intruded upon by that belief. It's, it's important. And because it appears that the Democrats will be, I think, wisely uh, not bringing this issue up, I think it is still important that we do understand her her attitude because I think it's a wise and prudent one. Here, uh, it continues the exchange led by Senator Durbin in 2017 asking about a specific phrase that the judge used in that paper of 20 years earlier. So let me ask you this question. I'm a product of 19 years of Catholic education. Mm Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, Holy Mother of the Church has not agreed with a vote of mine uh, and has let me know. You use a term in that article, or you both use a term in that article I'd never seen before. You refer to Orthodox Catholics. What's an Orthodox Catholic? Here is Amy Coney Barrett's explanation as to what is an Orthodox Catholic. As I recall, that term, um, we said something like, for lack of a better term, we're using the term Orthodox Catholic. And there was a long footnote saying, you know, that that was an imperfect term. Uh, It could, you know, refer to Orthodox Judaism, you know, Greek Orthodox. And so we kind of cast about, but what that term was designed to capture, because we were talking about conscientious objection, was a judge who... um, accepted the church's teaching that the death penalty would be impermissible in that case. We wrote about it from the perspective of a Catholic judge because my professor, John Garvey, had already undertaken that project. But it's really a problem that could face a judge of any religion or no religion at all who had a conscientious objection to the death penalty. Do you consider yourself an Orthodox Catholic? I am a Catholic, Senator Durbin. And that'll be it. I don't believe that we will hear during the course of this Supreme Court confirmation hearing uh, any questions about religion. Here, though, in this exchange from 2017, does the Honorable Amy Coney Barrett sum up exactly her attitude, the relationship between her faith and her work, and how she views there to be an absolute firewall and a protection uh, of one from the other. Uh, It's important to understand that, and I wanted to share that with you because I don't believe uh, she'll have the opportunity to communicate that uh, this week. She won't face attacks of religion because, as we know, in this country, there is no religious test for public office. Quick break. When we return, we're going to continue our series, A Day in the Life, speaking with candidate for Attorney General, Democratic nominee Greg Scordas, ahead on Live Mike. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.